You know, today as we continue in our series through James, um, I, I told you last week, as uh, I confess to you that I don't like losing games. Uh, I don't like losing games. It's not something I'm a fan of. I'm learning and I'm getting better at losing though. I, I really, I'm trying. If I was being completely honest with you last week, I probably would have amended the statement to saying, I don't like losing games to, I don't like losing. I just don't like losing, I, I don't. Um, it's, it pretty much applies to almost everything I do in my life, which is great and not so great because, I mean, in all seriousness, many of you, you might not know this, but as I was growing up, I grew up with um, a pretty severe case of undiagnosed ADHD and dyslexia. And so because of these two, um, you know, hurdles, that I've had, I found myself throughout all of my school career feeling um, absolutely subpar to everyone around me. When it came to my, my intellect, when it came to how smart I was, I felt intellectually inferior to every single person who was around me all the time because I couldn't do what everybody else did. And that insecurity that I had actually led to a, a really bad habit and the bad habit is whenever I engage in, a, in an opinion, opinionated conversation or I engaged in some sort of conflict, I had to be right, right? I had to be right. And I didn't realize it at the time uh, as much as I've worked through this in counseling and journaling and, and the Holy Spirit's revealed it to me that I didn't understand at the time that winning all of these conversations had everything to do with trying to cover up the truth that I was unbelievably insecure, that I was trying to avoid feeling or looking dumb at all because it was something I felt inside. I didn't want it to be affirmed outside. And yes, I, I'll tell you the truth. Even when I realized I was wrong in conversations, I figured out a way to turn the conversation so that my point was right, right? I could turn a conversation to make sure that I was right. It's such a great skill to have. Just ask my wife. <laughs> um, I, I'll be honest with you, this has caused quite a few issues in my life. It just has. Because simple arguments and fights became battlegrounds when they didn't need to be. They just did. And God has been at work deeply in my life over the last 10 years in this area. And there's one question that he continues to reveal to me to bring up over and over and over and I feel like the question he's been asking is, when's the last time you admitted you were wrong and changed your mind? Now, I told you I don't like losing. I don't, I, I don't like backing down. And man, talk about conviction every time this question bubbles up. But how would you answer this question if God asked you? If God asked you this question, how would you answer I'm not talking about little things like, where do you feel like going to eat after church today? What do you want for lunch? I'm talking on the real topics. The big things that we know right now are dividing our families, our country, and the church as a whole. We're watching things go. When's the last time that you listened so well that, that maybe someone presented something and you changed your mind and admitted you were wrong? I know it's like, oh, it's simple. In today's culture, no, it's not. It's not so simple. We are constantly in a place where we are fighting or we're worried about fighting so we preemptively get our ammunition ready because we know something's gonna break out. 
We're so scared of changing our mind on things because people will then call us a hypocrite. People will tell us all the reasons that you believe this, now you believe that, that's, you can't do that. You can't change your mind. And collectively as a country, we just, and as a culture, we hate losing. Second really is the first loser. We have to figure out a way to get first in there somehow, right? Where, where in the world does all of this fighting come from? Where does all this hatred that we experience on all these levels come from? And why in the world, oh, I'm asking myself this question, why doesn't the church of Jesus Christ look any different than the world around us? We fight just as much, if not even worse. Why are we picking fights? I think that this breaks the heart of God. And I am so thankful, though, that he has given us a very clear path, some clear wisdom. And we know that when we ask for wisdom, we'll give us wisdom. He has given us wisdom on where this fighting, where our desire to fight, where, this, where does this come from? What am I going to do to stop this? He's given us wisdom. So with that in mind, would you do me a favor and turn to James chapter 4? It'll be almost near the end of your Bible if you have a Bible with you. And if you don't have a Bible and would like one, we would love to give you a Bible, our gift to you. This is where life is going to be found. And um, as you're turning there, um, this is such an amazing little letter. But to set some of the context in James chapter 4 for us today in, in this idea of arguing is remembering that James is writing to a series of very small churches. And all of these churches, um, they're uh, mostly Jewish followers of Jesus, living in a world where they are persecuted both by the Romans and the other people who are Jewish because they have chosen to follow Jesus. And what James is about to write is simply directed at churches, okay? So before you sit or I sit and we say, you know, the Romans should have been doing that, just like that church would have, nope. We can't look at the world around us for anyone who doesn't follow Jesus and say, you need to do this. We don't get to do that. But for those of us who do follow Jesus, this is what we're called to do. Okay, this is it. And if you're here this morning and you're kind of figuring faith out, you have not chosen to follow Jesus, you got questions and you're like, I'm just, I don't know. Number one, I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad you have questions. Go to Alpha, that'll help. But number two is, listen, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. So exhale. I would suggest to you, though, that you lean in and listen because what, Jesus or, what James has to say, which Jesus already said, I believe will make your life better. I do. It'll make your life better. I'd listen in because it's gold. So let's get to the root of all our fighting. You ready to figure out where it comes from? As we walk through um, these 10 verses of James, I want you to really pay attention to the language that he uses, specifically how much battle language he's going to use, like war-type language. Let's start in verse 1. We'll look at the first three verses. It says, What's causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Now, uh, this passage starts out very different. This is, I understand, a bit complex. It's uh, really, really deep. 
and it looks very different than any of the other passages that we've looked at. In the other passages, James starts with a question, and then he gives some sort of illustration to help us understand it. Here, he doesn't do that. He starts with two questions and no illustration. James is in teaching mode now. This is important to him, and he really wants the church to understand this. His first question is simply this. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Now, my first answer to this is, I did nothing, right? This is, they started it. It doesn't matter what fight or quarrel we're in, you started this. Just so you know, okay? Fights and quarrels in my home growing up were very, very regular. This is what we did all the time. And would you believe I never started a single fight in that home? It was always someone else. James isn't looking for them to, to find an answer to this and, and say, you know, in their little church, who's causing fights and quarrels among you? Pastor Will is, and like throw him under the bus. That, that's not what he's trying to do here. The letter's going out to all of these different types of churches. And what's amazing and depressing at the same time is all the fights are going to start in the same exact place, which leads to a second question. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Oh, I think our first, uh, I think my first response is who caused this fight? What, where does this come from? It's your fault. And what James does is he says, doesn't it actually? And he turns it on the reader to say, isn't this something that you have to deal with? And while the rest of the book feels a bit scattered and all these different topics Chapter 4 in the beginning of these verses is directly tied into all of chapter 3, which is unlike the rest of the book. Remember, he has just talked about how our tongue being so tiny can cause massive issues, massive issues. And, and Jesus then says it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if you want to know where your heart is, just listen to the words. If you want to know where someone else's heart is, listen to the words. So we got to listen to our words. And then he's like, listen, I know that your words are going to cause you issues, so you're going to look for wisdom. How do you find wisdom because you're going to need it. And there's a difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And godly wisdom is going to be others-focused, Jesus-centered. But worldly wisdom has us at the center of it. And it's rooted in two things. It's rooted in jealousy and selfish ambition. Two emotions that I would believe we are all intimately familiar with. We have a battle raging in us. And the root of that battle is what's causing our fights. It's this jealousy, selfish ambition. It's this what we want. And when we're trying to manage what we want and the flesh wins and what we desire, what we think we need, it frustrates the people around us. We, we're going to try to find a way to get what we want. Anybody else ever use the phrase, I'll figure it out? Like, you really want to do this? I will figure it out. Oh my goodness, I do this all the time. In verse 2, James tells us we don't get... We want what we don't have, so we scheme and we kill to get it. Now, there are a handful of theologians that do actually believe he's being literal here. Um, I think there'd be a different thing he'd be addressing in the church if they were killing each other for stuff. So I, I kind of lean with most of the other teachers here who think that this is not literal, that, that you know he's using hyperbole and really trying to say, like, listen, you're physically not killing each other, but Jesus says if you hate someone, you kill them. And so emotionally and spiritually, you're destroying each other right now. You would see something that someone else has in the church, and you'd want it. Or you'd want to destroy it so they didn't have it. In these moments, I think for all of us, something outside of us triggers a desire inside our souls. 
And we do all we can to scheme, to figure it out, to get what we want. This church, and I believe we act in our own self-interest. And James says at the end of verse two, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Oh, well, that's easy. So if I just ask God for what I want, that'll stop all the fighting, right? That'd be great. That'd be great. But it's not true because the root of the problem hasn't changed. The root of the problem hasn't changed. We, we can ask God for what we want and we never get it. Why? Because our motives are all wrong. Now, I remember when I was young, listening to um, a pastor, you know, teach on this passage and, you know, you got to ask God for, and I was like, sweet. And because he said, you don't have what you don't want, or you don't have uh, what you want because you don't ask God for it. And I was like, sweet. On the way home, I'm in the car and I'm like, dear Lord, give me a million dollars in Jesus name. You know, like, let's, let's do this. Um, I was going to ask, I wanted this. And I wanted this because it seemed like the people around me who had money were very happy and they could get the things that they want. It's funny, as I look back now in my 40s at what, like 10-year-old Jimmy, what would I do with a million dollars? I mean, how many baseball cards, comic books could you buy? I mean, I, I definitely would have bought a new Game Boy and an NES, you know, because they didn't have the Super one yet. I, I did, most likely would have gotten a bike, a Teenage Mutant Ninja skateboard. I don't, what, I mean, what else do you spend money on? How much, I would vomit from candy, I don't know. You know, it's funny, as I never received that million dollars. <laughs> I didn't. Is this because God could not provide that? No, no, God could absolutely provide that. But it was because my motives in that moment were all focused on me. I understand that they were selfish. And I believe that James hits the nail on the head with his last phrase here and he says, you want only what will give you pleasure. There was no thought of what will benefit others. Actually, I thought, I, how would I lord this over my brothers? That's what I would do. There's nobody else focused on this. James isn't a dummy. He, right, he says, we usually ask and we long for material possessions, relationships, and success because we believe that they'll make us happy. We want them to fulfill our pleasures, our desires. It's the wrong motives. And it will always cause the same exact issues. Internally, we'll never really find that satisfaction that we're looking for, will we? Relationally, we're always going to be comparing where we are with where other people are. We're longing all the time for what's newest and what's next in our relationship with God. We feel all the time like, like he could care less about us because he's not giving me what I'm asking for. And to be honest, it's, it's so often that our motives are wrong when we're asking and we can't blame God for not giving us something that we couldn't handle. We can't blame God for asking for a blessing that would truly destroy us because we don't have the character to handle it. But we do, don't we? We blame God all the time for these things and we question him when he says no. Do you know what happens? I think a lot of times we use that as our excuse to say, well, if you say no, then, then I'm gonna go to the world to get what I think I deserve and I think I need. You don't know what I need. You don't know what I want because you don't care. And so this is why James is so strong in verses four to six. Very, very strong. He starts off by saying this in verse four. He says, you adulterers. Now, it actually, some of your versions, if you're reading it, say adulteresses. 
this is not a sexist remark that he's making, you know, pigeoning or just tagging women in this. He is referring to the church as the bride of Christ here, okay? The bride of Christ. And he's talking to the entire church saying, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate and that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James goes in this moment from talking about how our motives matter whenever we approach God and then applies this to how we deal with the people around us. How we deal with the world really matters. But he does it in a very shocking way, starting by addressing this letter, this, this church to you adulterers. Now, I'll just be honest with you, this doesn't seem like the most conducive way to get people to listen to you. I mean, shock value would be there, but they don't teach you this in preaching class, okay? You know, when you show up at a church, call everybody adulterers. They'll love it. Everyone will stay, right? They don't do this, but he just calls them out. And what's he call them out on? Their public profession of being in a relationship with Jesus, but their evident love for the world and what it has to offer. They profess to follow Jesus, but they look exactly like the world around them, and that's what they want. I feel like he's kind of illustrating. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too? Did you ever hear that phrase? Now, I, I mean, we recently in our home discovered King Arthur's gluten-free cupcake mix. And I, I need to tell you, I absolutely love having cupcakes around. Oh, these are good. They smell good. I love having cupcakes around. I, I try to avoid eating sugar often, so I don't like having cupcakes around because there's this temptation because when I eat a cupcake, I want to eat more cupcakes and I keep wanting to eat them. And the problem is if I eat them, they're not there, right? If I eat them, they don't exist in my home. And so, Chris, I'm gonna use that as, I don't know which kind of drum that is, so I'm just gonna leave it. I mean, when you look at this, I, I, I can't have this in my hand. I have icing on my fingers too. I can't have this in my hand and eat it and have it as well. It just makes sense. And what James is saying to the church that he's writing to is like, listen, you need to wake up because you're, you're trying to have a relationship with God and say, we're all in for him. And at the same time, you're trying to say, I want to have a relationship with the world. I want to be, I want to be all in for you and all in with this cake. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's just not doable. And I get it. The world will look appealing to us. It'll smell fantastic. Mm. Oh, that's good. It'll taste delicious. But it'll never sustain us. 
What's wild about it is if I eat this cupcake, I joked around with a couple of people that were here earlier. If I eat this cupcake, guess what? I want another one. <laughs> I mean, they're small, right? There's not even that much icing on it, and I will justify every reason to eat one more cupcake. And I will keep eating them. And I will keep saying, God, I want to be like you, but I want what the world has to offer at the same time. And when I continue to eat these cupcakes, it does nothing but leave me with that little weird processed film thing in the top of your mouth that's like that weird thing. I don't like that. If I keep eating this, it's going to leave me with a stomach ache. For me, my skin's going to begin to break out. For some of us, our GI systems get all messed up after you've had how many of these. You have no energy and you can't figure out what's going on and we feel like garbage. We look like garbage. And then we treat each other like garbage. And yet in this moment, do you know what we do? This is when we beg God. God, would you help me because I feel like garbage. Would you help me because things are just aren't great in my life. And we beg God for help. All while holding another cupcake in our hand, fighting with other people because I need just one more. And I don't think James could be any clearer. You can't have this relationship with the world and with God at the same time. You cannot have everything the world has to offer. And when God says no to something, you can't just go get it there because it's going to destroy us in so many ways and there's no wisdom in this. You cannot be in a relationship with Jesus and expect to engage in everything that the world has around you. And so James says it as clear as clear could be in verse four. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. This destroyed me this week. This was, and I believe still is, what followers of Jesus in the church are battling. It just is. Of course, this is going to cause conflict among us. Internally, this is going to eat us alive, isn't it? This guilt and this shame and this thing that we feel. And then when we feel that we're never great with the people around us. And, and if you're with us today here in person, or you're watching online and you're thinking, oh, this is me. This is me. I do this. And, and uh, oh my gosh, I must be the only one that battles like this. I must be the only one who's feeling this tension right now. I want to tell you as clear as I can that that is a lie from the enemy, straight from his mouth from the pit of hell. You are not the only one who struggles with this. All of us struggle with this. Every single follower of Jesus will struggle with this until the very day we die. And here's the great news, because I know you're like, that's not good news. Here's the great news. Jesus Christ offers hope to every single one of us. He is where our hope is going to be found, because if we're going to be at war, listen, if we're going to be at war, it's important that we are positioned on God's side and we understand who we're really fighting against. James closes out this section right here with some of the most practical but difficult commands for us to follow. Are you ready? Let's look at James 4, starting in verse 7. He says, so humble, and that word humble there in some of your translations might say uh, submit. Submit's a better word there. So submit yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. 
Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. You know, with all the battle language that James has used, it's hard to read these commands. Everything that was in blue there, it's so hard to read the commands that he was telling us to do because they just seem out of place. They don't seem like war language. When he says like, you're gonna battle, you can't be friends, I feel like I'm listening to Braveheart. And he's getting me ready to be like, we're gonna go and, and we're gonna... I'm ready to, to have like a battle cry in this moment. Let's go attack, let's go win, let's go do this, sharpen my sword, buckle up my boots, it's time to cut the world to pieces. But that is not what James does at all, is it? That, that's not what he does. Instead of a rally cry, his rally is to cry. He pauses, he's like, listen, I know this might sound odd, but James is saying if, if you want to engage in the battle that you feel internally that's causing all these fights and quarrels among you, what you need to do is submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. If we want to avoid conflicts, it really comes down to submission. Our calling, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, our command and our duty is to submit to God. Submission is our calling, letting him fight the battles and listening for him to tell us what to do and where to go. I know that this is so backwards. It feels so backwards for what we know in our culture, and I will be candid. Um, I don't even have this in here, but this is backwards for how the church operates today. Amen. We're told to fight when Jesus and James say, submit, but I need to tell you, this is a pattern you will see all over the Bible. It's a pattern you see all over. Um, one of my favorite stories of submission that just goes backwards to me is actually from Moses. If you don't know the story of Moses, um, he is the leader of this um, giant, giant tribe, millions of people, uh, these Israelites, these Hebrews who were enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. And he's called, and after a series of miraculous signs, he leads them out of Egypt. And Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the world at that time, lets, them, lets his entire slave labor go. And so they begin on their journey. And as they go on their journey, they've got all the food they need. They've got extra resources with them. And, and off they go to this great promised land. And after they left, Pharaoh kind of gets like, well, wait a minute. I just lost all of my workers. I just lost my entire economy. It just walked right out. And I let him go. So he gets ready for battle. He sharpens his swords, he puts the helmets on, he gets his best chariots, his best commanders, and all the men to gather together to go get his group back, his slaves. At one point, this massive group of former slaves finds themselves in a very tough spot. They're facing a sea that they cannot get through, and at their backs is the strongest army who's ready to completely either destroy them or enslave them. 
And in this giant moment of conflict in Exodus 14, this is what we read. The Israelites, this is this huge tribe. This is how they respond. You ready? As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up. They panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord. Oh, do you know what they cried out to the Lord? This is what they cried out to the Lord. They cried out. They got ticked at God. And they're like, what's your problem? Why did you let us, why did you show up? We were fine back there. Why don't you just let them take us over? You have ruined things for us. We want to go back to being slaves. They were ready to submit to Egypt. They were ready to go back into slavery. Instead of resisting the devil, it's like they were ready to jump on his side. And before you sit here and I sit here and cast judgment going, how could they do this? We do the same thing. We do the same exact thing all the time. It's just easier to submit to what someone else wants than to wait for what God wants. I'd rather die than wait. But do you know what Moses tells them? In Exodus 14, 13 and 14, it says, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. What's the last three words there? Can we say those out loud together? Just stay calm. There's a fight. There's a fight. But God says, this is not yours. This is not their fight. All that they are simply called to do, Moses says, is shut up. Calm down. Wait. And I love that command. Just stay calm. And it's in their calm submission to God that God speaks to Moses. And you know what he tells Moses? Good, now that everything's like quiet, get moving. Like you, you need to get moving and not towards the army, not towards the battle. You're gonna go away from it. I'm gonna provide a miracle for you to go through this sea. You walk that way, I'll take care of them. You stay calm and you walk that way. Don't panic, don't freak out. You go, I've got the battle. It is my, in my hands. And so if we have these quarrels and these fights among us, what's the best thing we could do? Is it submit by running? No. No, not at all. Because that's not the way of Jesus. He didn't run. Instead, he said over and over, I submit to the Father. And what the Father wants is what I want. And when we choose to follow Jesus, our lives are no longer about winning. Instead, they're defined by submission. They're defined by submitting. And the word that James used, that humble submit word, really means to come under control. If we want to avoid conflicts, we need to be in control here. But not us in control because we're at the center. And it's hard because for anybody else a control freak like me, if you're online, I know, I know you're there, I get it, right? This idea of submission, letting someone else take control, I don't like this. This causes panic for me. It's horrifying because I like to have control. I like when things are fixed. I like being able to move a conversation so I can win. But here, James invites us into a completely different way of life. When we give all that we are to God and we trust him and we, we resist the devil saying, I will not buy into taking another cupcake right now. Yes, I've been into one. And it was good, and everything in me wants to eat both of them right now. But I'm going to need to resist this. The key simply is 
to the asking to solving the question that he asks at first. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? It's our selfishness and constant battle with control here. What's the answer? It's humble yourself before the Lord and he'll lift you up. I know it's easy to say that. And to close today, um, I'd love to say, oh, just go be humble. That's weird. Over the last 10 years, as God has been asking me that same question and really kind of unearthing a lot of pain through it, there's three things I've learned that practices I've, I've built into my life that I'd love to sh- give you to maybe start practicing. And What causes quarrels and fights? Well, humble yourself. The first thing that you could do, first practice is just line up with Jesus. As his followers, we need to make sure we're not ahead of him. Just don't get ahead of him. Slow down. Take a solid look at the life that you're living right now. Just compare it to his. Go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're about to start Mark soon. Um, just, just compare it to his. And if you don't know even what to do with there, maybe a great place to start is take a piece of paper and write down, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then maybe just ask God where you're not lining up with that. that that's it. Like, that, I'm, not, I'm not saying it needs to be huge. If that makes you uncomfortable, just write out the Ten Commandments. How do you find yourself doing here? And where it doesn't line up with God, I, I don't know. Like that, that's, the, that's the next step. But where are you fighting battles that God's not caused you to fight? I think sometimes we're, we're like, why are all these conflicts? Because we're stepping into things we've never been called to step into. Because we're so far ahead, we're marched, we're moving. Keep going. Slow down. Line up with Jesus. Pray through with if, if you can't even figure it out, if there's one conflict and you're like, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Pick that one person that you're always fighting with. I have them in my brain. Just simply ask yourself the question, how would Jesus handle this same conversation? Like, you don't have to do that with them because that would be weird. But on your own, think, would Jesus have responded the way that I responded? When was he firm? When was he not? You're only going to know that by reading his story. Be familiar with it. The second thing that I've learned deeply is to confess and repent. I have found as that I, as I line my life up with Jesus' life, they are really different, more different than I'm comfortable with, but I've become more aware of how sinful and untrustworthy my heart is. It is dark in comparison to the light of Jesus, and this is why I am always asking the Holy Spirit to light things up in my heart that I, I don't know and I don't see why I do what I do. And when he reveals those things, I confess them as soon as possible, right away. Um, if it involves another person, I do everything I can to go to that person and ask for forgiveness. I literally confess to them what is going on and the issue that's there. I, I used to think that when I did this, it meant I lost. So I never did it. I never wanted to be wrong. And even if I realized I hurt someone, I would never ask for forgiveness because it meant that I lost. I have learned the strongest thing you could ever do is to ask for forgiveness and ask for help. The strongest thing you could ever do is not just man up, not just do it on your own. You could push through. No, the strongest thing you could ever do is to ask for forgiveness and ask for help. I had no idea the weight and the burden that unconfessed sin was on my soul until it wasn't there anymore. And when it was gone, I need to tell you, the burden of Jesus is so much different than the burden of unconfessed sin in the world. I can't control what the other person does with my confession. They may throw it back in my face. They may say, I, I'm not forgiving you. 
that's okay. I can't control what they do. I can only control what I do, and it's own up. Do you have any idea how often I am wrong? <laughs> it's unbelievable now. I feel like life is a constant confession. It just is. When you're following Jesus, welcome to being wrong and being forgiven over and over so that you can extend that same grace. The strongest thing you could ever do is ask for forgiveness and ask for help. And when you line up with Jesus, you confess and you repent. The final practice that's really helped me is to receive peace. Um, Jesus promises us a peace that surpasses us all understanding. And the enemy, I believe, wants us to live in shame. So if you're sitting here and you're like, I'm the one that causes the fights and quarrels, you're looking to the person next to you and your family going, they are the root of my fights and quarrels. They're not. It's in your heart. That's where this starts. So we need Jesus to, to bring that. But you know what the enemy's going to want to do? He's going to want to tell you that it's actually all your fault and that you are the problem. And he wants you to live in shame. He wants you to hang your head in disgust and then let that disgust extend to others. He wants our eyes down and on us. I want to tell you that it is time to receive the peace that Jesus Christ offers us, the peace that comes from submission to God, a God that we can trust who says, I have forgiven you. I have given you so much grace. A God who tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just, and that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will always have stuff to work through in your soul, absolutely. But you do not need to keep confessing it because it's covered and it's done. And I've had to have this conversation far more than I like. If you find yourself going before God and confessing the same sin over and over and over for whatever it was that you did, and you confess that sin to them, and then you confess that sin to God, but you keep confessing it, do you not believe what he actually says? If he says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. If you have to keep going to him, that simply means there's something inside that does not believe God's word is true. It's true. You are a child of God. Lift up your eyes and look into the eyes of a Savior who says, I've extended this grace, but you are living in his shame, and that's, that's not a gift I have given you. So stop. And if you find yourself today throwing the same things back at someone who has confessed, you need to stop that immediately. If they've asked for forgiveness and you've truly forgiven them, you don't get to throw it at them. They've been forgiven. And if you throw it back at them, then did you really forgive? If not, I think you have some wrestling matches with Jesus to take on. Do not let the devil let you look down. Look up into the eyes of Jesus and receive peace. I've spent most of my life feeling intellectually inferior to everybody. And out of insecurity, I will tell you what happened. The very battle that I wrestled with in my soul is the very, to, that I'm a, an idiot. I had no idea. I had no idea that what I was simply doing to everybody else was putting the same exact lie on them because I couldn't afford to be wrong. If I had to be right all the time, I'm approaching every conversation like you're already wrong. I've not valued you. I've not respected you. And in my pain, I was repeating the same lie and putting that on somebody else, which simply meant in reality, I was losing no matter what com how the conversation ended. And for the last 10 years, no matter what the conflict, the quarrel, the issue, God is always asking me, Jimmy, when's the last time you admitted you were wrong? 
and you changed your mind? I'm appreciating this question for one reason. It grounds me. It grounds me because now I'm ready to listen, and maybe with the ears and the eyes of Jesus, I can hear where someone else is. I've become totally comfortable with not being the smartest person in the room. Um, If I was, I'd actually have nothing to learn. What a sad place to be. As my life lines up with Jesus, all I want to do is look like he does, where he asks great questions. And instead of trying to win an argument, which he absolutely could have all the time, submitting to God meant learning their heart so that he could love them and hopefully help them love God. That's what humility looks like. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What are you submitting to? What are you resisting? Let's just spend maybe 30 seconds or so and ask that the Holy Spirit, for each of us, if we follow Jesus, would shine light in our area to give us some insight as to where are we submitting and who are we submitting to? Is this the root of my troubles and quarrels? Holy Spirit, we invite you to shine light into our hearts of where we're not lining up with loving you, loving others. Would you tell us the truth? And would you shine light on the lies so we can confess it, repent of it, and receive your grace? Would you speak to us?